You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We've been working our way through a series this year uh, called We Believe, and we've really been looking at um, just what the Bible teaches uh, regarding basic Christian doctrine. And we've really been trying to look at this through what I would call a biblical uh, or a Christian worldview versus a secular uh, worldview. And a recent nationwide survey completed by the Barner Research Group, this is a Christian organization, determined that only 4% of Americans had what we would call a biblical or a Christian worldview. Now, when George Barna, who has researched cultural trends uh, and the Christian church, he's been doing this since like about 1984 for, so, uh, uh, for a long time. When he really began to look at the church and began to question those who considered themselves born-again believers or evangelical Christians, of those who, who saw themselves uh, as having a biblical worldview, uh, he found 9% of the people in the church identified as having a Christian or a biblical worldview. And when you stop and think about that, just 9% of evangelical or born-again believers see themselves as having a biblical or a Christian worldview, you really can kind of begin to understand why the church in America today is where uh, it's at. Barna's survey also connected an individual's worldview with his or her moral beliefs and actions. And here's what Barna said. He said, although most people own a Bible, and, and some many Bibles, um, and know some of its content, he said, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles into um, and, and form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. Now, when I use the word worldview, what I mean by that, that is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of the life and uh, of the world. Now, according to David Noble, who is the author of Understanding the Times, he defines a worldview as this. He said, it's any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. And so as we said throughout the series, whether you realize it or not, subconsciously or consciously, every individual has some type of a worldview. There is a way all of us kind of view the world. Now, a personal worldview, it is a combination of all you believe to be true. And what you believe, that kind of becomes the catalyst. It becomes the driving force behind every emotion, decision, and action. Therefore, it, it really affects or it governs your response to every area, every domain of life. From philosophy to science, theology, anthropology to economics, law, politics, art, social order. I mean, it affects everything. 
a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview, it is one that really is kind of based upon or sees the, the infallible word of God kind of as its foundation. When you believe the Bible is entirely true, then you kind of allow that to kind of become the foundation to everything you say, everything you believe, and everything that you do. So the question is, do you have a biblical or a Christian worldview? Are, are you among those 9% of evangelical or born-again believers uh, that, that Barna found? And again, I'll give you the questions that Barna used to kind of determine this, and you can answer these questions yourself and kind of determine where you fall in this. So these are the questions that he asked to kind of determine, do you have a biblical Christian worldview? Do absolute moral truths exist? I mean, are there certain things that are always right, certain things that are always wrong will never change? You know, is murder always wrong? Is abortion always wrong? So do absolute moral truths exist? Number one. Number two, is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Number three, did Jesus Christ live a sinless, perfect life? Number four, is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule and exercise total power today? Is salvation a free gift of God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Believe it or not, when I was in the Methodist church, our bishop, who was kind of over all of the United Methodist churches in the state of Iowa, did not believe in a personified devil. He believed that in institutional devils, you know, corporations that were evil and greedy, those were the devil. But he did not believe in a real personified devil. Number eight, does a Christian have a responsibility, a duty to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? And then the last one is, is the Bible accurate in all that it teaches? Now, if you answered yes to all nine of those questions, then again, you're kind of among the 9% who did, and you are really among the few who, who I would say would have a true biblical or Christian worldview. But what's more important than your yes to these answers is, does your life show it? Does your life reflect that you truly have and you hold and you live out a Christian, a biblical worldview? Granted, we're all sinners. We all fall short. We make mistakes. But most of our gut reactions will reflect what we deep down, honest to goodness, believe to be real and true. And so far in this series, we've really kind of looked at, uh, you know, the Bible, last week we kind of got into uh, what we believe regarding creation versus evolution. And this week, I want to talk about the problem of suffering and evil. Now, Vincent Villagosi uh, spent eight years as a prosecutor for the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office where this guy won an incredible 105 out of 106 felony jury trials. This guy's good, okay? In his book entitled, The Five Reasons That O.J. Simpson Got Away With Murder, he writes these words. He said, when tragedies like the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman occur, 
they get one to thinking about the notion of God. Nicole was only 35. Ron was just 25. Both outgoing, friendly, well-liked young people who had a zest for life. Their lives were brutally extinguished by a cold-blooded murderer. How does God, if there is a God, permit such a horrendous and terrible act to occur along with the countless other unspeakable atrocities committed by man against his fellow man throughout history? And how could God, all good and all just according to Christian theology, permit the person who murdered Ron and Nicole to go free? When Judge Ito's clerk, Deidre Robertson, read the jury's not guilty verdict, Nicole's mother whispered, God, where are you? That mother was asking a question that a lot of people throughout the generations ask every day. A man named Gideon asked this very question thousands of years ago when facing a famine, terrorist attacks, and the killing of his own people. Gideon said in Judges 6.13, he said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Again, George Barna was once commissioned to ask people what one question would they ask God if they had the opportunity and knew that God would give the answer? By an overwhelming majority, the most urgent question was this. Why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the questions that plagues Christianity the most. Oftentimes when I'm talking with unbelievers about their faith and, and maybe why they don't believe in God, this is often one of the issues that comes to the surface very, very quickly. If God is so good, if God is so loving, why does your God permit evil? And that's really where the problem arises because of what we as Christians believe about God and evil. We really kind of believe mainly in these five things. Number one, we believe God exists. There is a God. Number two, we believe that God is all good. Number three, we believe God is all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. Number four, we believe God is all-wise. And number five, evil exists. Now see, the problem here comes in how can the last statement be reconciled with the other four? I mean, if the other four, first four statements there are true, how can number five be true? I mean, number five really shouldn't be a problem if the first four are true. That's kind of how a, a secular mind kind of looks at this. If God made no claims to being totally good, then the existence of evil would be easy to explain. But God claims to be all good. See, if God were limited in power, there were some things God could not do, that God was not strong enough to withstand or to overcome evil, then evil would be easy to explain. But God claims to be all-powerful. If evil were just an illusion, 
a figment of our imagination and not reality, then the problem of evil would be, you know, it it would be easy to explain. It doesn't exist. But we all know that evil is not an illusion. It's real. So again, how do you square an all-good, all-powerful, all-wise God with the evil and suffering that exists? See, I know for some of you here today, this is not just an academic question. It's not just a theological debate. For some of you this morning, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. You've gone through or you're going through painful, difficult situations right now. You've gone through or experienced the loss of a child. You've had suffering or you're kind of going through sickness and disease yourself right now. You either know someone or maybe you're related to someone who's either been murdered or committed suicide and you're kind of just grappling for answers. You're searching for answers. And I want to confess, I cannot stand up here and I don't believe anybody can stand up here today and give you the perfect, complete answer from God on this issue because I don't believe the perfect answer really exists this side of heaven. But what I can give you and what I want to offer you this morning are just some biblical answers and questions that I think can help us kind of understand and come to terms with the presence, the problem of evil and not just experience, you know, satisfaction but also maybe victory when it comes our way. So the first question is, where do evil and suffering come from? There's one thing I can say unequivocally and dogmatically about evil and suffering, and it is this. God is not the author of evil and suffering. He's not. So often you'll hear the question, why didn't God just create a world where there was no evil and suffering in the first place? And my response to that is, he did. Genesis 1.31, after God created the heavens and the earth and everything upon them, it says in verse 31, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. So the question is, if God is not the author or the source of evil and suffering, and if what God created is good, then where did all of this evil and suffering come from in the first place? Because see, in the beginning... There was no evil, there was no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no death, and yet the world today is saturated with all these things. So what brought all of this about? Again, the Bible very plainly states that everything went south the moment Adam and Eve used their God-given free will to choose to disobey him. Again, listen to these words From Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, which is not true. God never told them that they couldn't touch it. He just said, you can't eat it. And oftentimes, that's what we want to do. We kind of take whatever God has said, we kind of want to add to it. Or we kind of want to detract from it. Or we kind of want to manipulate it in some way to kind of get around that. 
And so we kind of see this even early on happening with Eve. God said, we can't eat it or touch it, and God never said that. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. That's been the problem with mankind ever since. We want to be like God. And this is that pride that the, the, the devil was beginning to tap into there in Eve. Knowing good and evil. So that's part of the problem for us. We know good and evil. Prior to this, Eve had no idea. She had never experienced evil. And so she, he's tempting her, saying, you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. The problem is we know good from evil right now. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to make sense of it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. In this one instance, in the very beginning, we see where all the problems of evil and suffering can be traced. As a matter of fact, if you go on to read in Genesis chapter three and four, you'll find the reason why childbirth is so painful to women. You'll find the reason why people murder one another. You'll find the reason why tsunamis and earthquakes erupt to wreak havoc on the human race. All of it goes back to and is traceable to sin. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, a sin nature has been passed on to every man and every woman who's ever been born. Do you realize that's why you don't have to teach kids to be bad? Kids come naturally programmed, pre-programmed to be bad. You have to teach kids to be good. You don't have to teach kids to lie. They come pre-programmed with that. You have to teach kids to be honest and to be truthful. We all have that sinful nature which causes us to do evil and to inflict as well as experience suffering. Sin not only corrupted the heart of the human race, the Bible says it also corrupted, it affected, it influenced the physical world that we live in. Genesis 3.18 says, because of sin, nature was corrupted and thorns and thistles entering into the world. Romans 8.20 says, against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. And I know it can maybe sound simplistic and kind of a cop-out to some of you, but the root problem of all evil and suffering is the sin of the human race. Incredibly, someone has estimated that 95% of the suffering in this world is the result of sin in the lives of ourselves and other people. See, we want to blame the devil for all the evil. We want to blame the devil for everything that's going wrong when oftentimes the real culprit is the person that's staring back at us in the mirror. And again, I'm not trying to make light of the problem, but I can illustrate it with something I read quite recently. And it said this, in the beginning, God populated the earth with broccoli, cauliflower, spinach, green, yellow, and red vegetables of all kinds so man and woman would live long and healthy lives. Then using God's great gifts, Satan created Ben and Jerry's and Krispy Kreme donuts 
And Satan said, do you want chocolate with that? And man said, yes. And woman said, and to another one, would you add sprinkles? And they gained 10 pounds. Then God created the helpful yogurt that women might keep the figure man found so fair. Satan brought forth white flour from the wheat and sugar from the cane and combined them. Woman went from a size 2 to a size 12. So God said, try my fresh green salad. And Satan presented Thousand Island dressing and garlic toast on the side. And man and woman unfastened their belts as they continued to eat all that the devil laid before them. Then God said, I have sent you heart-healthy vegetables and olive oil in which to cook them. And Satan brought forth deep-fried fish and chicken-fried steak so big it needed its own platter. Man gained more weight and his cholesterol went through the roof. Then God brought running shoes so that his children might lose those extra pounds and Satan gave cable television with a TV remote so man would not have to toil changing the channels. Man and women laughed and cried before the flickering light and gained more pounds. Then God brought forth the potato, naturally low in fat and brimming with nutrition. And Satan peeled off the healthful skin, sliced the starchy center into chips and deep fried them. And man gained still more pounds. God then gave lean beef so man might consume few, fewer calories and still satisfy his appetite. And Satan created McDonald's and its dollar menu, double cheeseburger. Satan then said, you want fries with that? Man replied, yes, and supersized them. Satan said, it is good. Man went into cardiac arrest. God sighed and created quadruple bypass surgery. And then Satan created HMOs. Again, it's humorous, but again, I think it kind of makes the point. If you want to know why there is such evil and suffering in the world, oftentimes all you got to do is look in the mirror. As I've often said, most people want to blame the devil for everything bad. But the truth is, the devil just wakes some of you up in the morning and you kind of take it from there. Right? But it still kind of raises an even greater issue. And that is, why do evil and suffering exist? Now again, there are, are mainly three types of evil that exist in the world that we kind of see or hear of every day. First is what we would call moral evil. And that is evil which is committed by willing people that causes such things as war, crime, cruelty, discrimination, racism, suicide bombings, and injustice, just to name a few. Second, there's what we would call natural evil. And that's evil that involved things such as hurricanes, tsunamis, flood, earthquakes, and so forth. Then third, there's what we would call social evil, and that is evil such as things as poverty, hunger, and homelessness. Now the question that kind of, I think, roars in the minds of those who suffer from these things is why? Why did my little girl die of cancer? Why did my son die in that automobile accident? Why did I get cancer at such an early age? Why did God allow me to be molested as a child? And again, don't feel bad and certainly don't feel alone if you find yourself asking those questions because those questions, folks, they're as old as the human race. Everybody's heard of Job and how Job suffered. 
And in that suffering, Job kind of screams out that why question in this way, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. And there he says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came forth from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be at sleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? I'm going to tell you something that will probably disturb you, but I think it's the truth nonetheless. Nobody fully, finally, completely knows the answer to the why question. And for a lot of us, that's a real problem because we we live in the age of the public has a right to know generation. We live in a society that kind of demands an explanation for anything and wants to be informed on everything. We think just like the federal agencies in the U.S. government that God ought to operate under the Freedom of Information Act and that God has to disclose any information we want at any time to any question we might have. It's interesting to me that every time tragedy strikes, it's like we kind of call God on the carpet. We want God to explain himself. And that God had better have a good reason for what he did or what he allowed. And I hate to tell you this, and again, you're not going to like this, but it's true. Because God is God, because God is all good, all powerful, all wise, he doesn't need to explain his actions to anyone, and he doesn't owe any of us an explanation. Do you realize for 40 or for 37 chapters of the book of Job, Except for talking to Satan himself, God remains totally silent. A lot is being said. A lot of accusations are being hurled at God, but God never responds. And then Job demands an explanation as to why he has suffered. And God responds with one question that ended every other question Job had. And the question God put to Job is there in uh, chapter 38, verse 4, and God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me that if you have such understanding. What God said to Job, in effect, was this, you wouldn't even be here right now asking me a question if I hadn't decided to create you to begin with. Yet even though God doesn't owe us an explanation, I'll try to give you at least a partial explanation. And basically, it really kind of comes down to the free will of human beings, Do you realize one of the things that makes men and women morally responsible is freedom? Meaning we have a choice about what we want to do. 
When God created every one of us, he created us with the capacity to either choose to love him or choose not to love him. To choose to follow him or to choose not to follow him. To choose to believe in him or to choose not to. But you got to realize with that freedom of choice comes the possibility, the potential of evil. With that Freedom of choice. Every one of us have been given. There also comes with it the potential, the possibility of evil. Do you realize to be free, to have a free will, you have not only the ability to choose good, but you also have the ability to choose evil. And when you use your free will and you choose to do evil, that doesn't make God responsible for the evil, it makes you responsible for the evil. God created the fact of freedom, we performed the acts of freedom, both good and evil. God made evil possible, we made evil actual. That's the difference. You see, in that sense, God is really very pro-choice. The only way that God could create a world with free will is God had to create a world with the potential, the possibility for evil and suffering. God loves us so much and he wants us to love him so much that rather than make us into kind of, you know, mind-numbed robots, he made us into real people with real freedom with the ability to make real choices that can either be choices for good or choices for evil. And all of that leads to still another question. What purpose do evil and suffering serve? Now there are some people who would say because of evil, the concept of God doesn't make any sense. It kind of goes back to those five statements we talked about at the very beginning. A lot of people say you cannot reconcile a good God with bad evil. But I'll tell you what, if you think about it, really the complete opposite of that is true. It's not because of evil that God doesn't make any sense. It's because of God that we can make any sense of evil. How do we do that? By remembering this truth. God is so good. God is so great. He can take the negative of evil and turn it into the positive of good. God is the only one who can give a purpose and a meaning to evil and suffering. Now how does God do this? He does it by keeping a promise he made to us in Romans 8, 28. I love this. It says, and we know or we are confident that God causes all things, good and bad, All things to work together. And here's the qualifier. To those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's the qualifier. There are so many people who want to understand what God is doing. They don't love him. They're not called according to his purpose. And Paul says here, we know, we can be confident that God causes all things to work together For those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. God has promised 
that he can take the absolute worst circumstance that comes into our lives and cause good to come out of it if we are committed to his will and his purpose and if we just love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To take, for example, the problem of pain. None of us like pain. We'll do everything we can to avoid pain. But do you know there is good in pain? Because pain can give us a warning of an even greater evil, okay? Pain teaches us not to touch a hot stove, okay? Our built-in nerve endings detect pain. So if we were to grab a hot pan, we don't just continue to hold on to it. Many times a small pain can kind of lead you to go to the doctor and there you discover a bigger problem that could have killed you if you had not discovered that through the lesser pain. Now, as surprising as it may seem, I mean, events such as hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes are actually necessary uh, for the benefit of the human race. Do you realize scientists now know that these events must occur for the earth to maintain its delicate balance of ecology, environmental conditions necessary for humans to survive? For example, they talk about hurricanes really counterbalance the ocean's tendencies to leach carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They say if the leaching continued unchecked, there would be catastrophic cooling, not heating of the planet, but there would be actual atmospheric cooling of the planet. Hurricanes, you may not realize this, also prevent the oceans from trapping too much of the sun's heat by helping to circulate the greenhouse gases globally as they shade the ocean so that the heat does not build up to such an intensity that it would kill all of the ocean life. What about earthquakes? Well, scientists are finding that the shifting of tectonic plates allows essential nutrients for life to be recycled back onto every continent. Without these earthquakes, nutrients essential for land life would erode in a very, very short time. And creatures, both those um, in the sea and out, would begin to starve to death. And again, all of this just once again goes to prove that just because we don't understand why bad things happen to us or to loved ones does not mean there isn't a purpose or that God doesn't have a plan for it. It may just be a purpose we can't see. And although it seems like a very high price to pay, the fact of the matter is there are some evils that God allows in order to bring about a greater good. God also uses pain and suffering to sharpen our character. God uses pain and suffering oftentimes to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, 3. And he says, but not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And we all know this. True virtues like character, perseverance, determination are only formed and strengthened through adversity, not prosperity. I've told you before that I believe God's purpose is for those of us who follow him. It's not to make us happy. God wants to make you holy, more like Jesus Christ. God also can use evil and suffering. Again, he's not the author of it, but God can use it, not to drive people away from him, but to draw people to him. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, for God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, my uncle, very, very hard-hearted man, very cruel man. And it's just as he kind of is in the, the, the last stages of cancer that he finally spoke to me a couple of weeks ago and I was able to lead him in a prayer of salvation. You know what, that never ever probably would have been possible if it wouldn't have been for the cancer that now racks his body. And again, God is not the author. That God did not cause that, but God, thanks be to God, he's using that to kind of break down those barriers between my uncle and, and God. And, and so again, sometimes God uh, will use that and will never regret that kind of sorrow. If you still don't believe that God can take a negative and turn it into a positive, then let me, let me give you what I kind of call exhibit A. The reason I know that God can take the absolute worst thing that ever happens in your life and bring out of it some of the best things that ever happen in your life is because God himself took the absolute worst thing that ever happened. It was the most unjust, unfair thing that ever happened in the history of the world, and God created from that the very best thing that ever happened in the history of the world. What do I mean? What am I referring to? I'm referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. God took the worst, most unjust, unfair thing that ever happened in human history, the death of his son on the cross, and he turned it into the best thing which could ever happen, which is the opportunity of salvation and the chance to receive eternal life. God took the very worst thing and brought out of it the very best thing. So I ask you, how can you not say in your individual life that God can't take whatever circumstances you're going through, no matter how difficult they may be, and create something good from them. I'll tell you what, if God can do that with the death of his son, Jesus Christ, he can do that with any evil or suffering that comes into your life as well. All of which leads to the greatest and final question, which is, when I experience evil and suffering, how should I respond? What, what should be my response in that? There's only one way you can respond to evil and suffering so that not only do you cope with it, but I'll tell you what, you'll get victory through this as well. And I'm going to tell you right up front, it's not easy, but it's the only thing that works, and that is trust. Every time sorrow, pain, suffering, or death comes your way, God is asking you this question, do you trust me? Do you trust me with this situation? Do you trust me with this person? As parents, we had to do these things with our children, you know, like taking them to the doctor or the dentist when they saw no good coming from it. But they had to trust that we were doing what was best for them. Just so there are times we have to trust the Father in heaven the same way. Again, just because you can't see a purpose in the pain and suffering you're going through doesn't mean there isn't one or that God cannot bring one. If God is good 
If we're going to believe that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, God is always in control, that God always does what is right, and that God loves you and I supremely and unconditionally, then we have to believe. We have to be confident in the fact that God can take the absolute worst thing that ever will come into our lives and use it for our ultimate good and for his glory. And again, Remember, he has already shown us he can do that through the cross of Jesus Christ. I close with this. When Billy Graham spoke to the grieving families of the Oklahoma City bombing clear back in 1995, I think most of us probably remember that. And as Billy Graham stood before the grieving family and friends and nation, he raised the why question. Why did God allow this? And Billy Graham simply said, I don't know. And then he added these words. He said, times like this will do one of two things. They will either make us hard and bitter and angry at God, or they will make us tender and open and help us to reach out in trust and faith. I pray that you will not let bitterness and poison creep into your souls but you will turn in faith and trust in God even if you cannot understand. And then he said, it is better to face something like this with God than without him. Because of Jesus, we can face evil and suffering, sorrow and pain, and even death, knowing that the ultimate victory will be ours and the greater glory will be his. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. I want to kind of just close with this challenge. I know there may be some of you in here this morning, and some of your stories, you know, I know, uh, I'm familiar with what you've gone through or maybe what's been done to you. Some of your stories I'm maybe not familiar with. But there may be some of you here this morning, and you've kind of gone through such ordeals or you've had circumstances and situations that have unfolded in your life and it's kind of really left you with that why question. God, why did you allow this? God, why did you let this happen? And this morning what I want to just offer to you is I want to just offer for you to lay down that why question before God this morning and just pick up that trust affirmation that you can trust God with whatever has gone on or is going on. Oftentimes, life will kind of come in and shatter dreams and hopes, and oftentimes all we're kind of left with are the shattered pieces, and we kind of just try to gather up all of those shattered pieces, and we want to try to make sense of it, or we want to try to put it all back together again to no avail. It just isn't possible. And so this morning, I want to just offer you maybe an opportunity if you're here and you're kind of just holding the fragmented pieces of shattered dreams and hopes this morning, is maybe just rather than taking and holding on to all of that, just taking and just offering that to God this morning, just giving that broken, shattered dreams, those hopes, whatever that may represent, just giving that to God and being confident and knowing that God can take all of that, and, and God can, in only a way that God can, that God can begin 
to restore and to kind of make sense and to give purpose and meaning out of that. We have a phrase that is called redemptive suffering. It's where God takes the, the evil, the things that are, we're suffering for, and, and God redeems it. God brings good out of it. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're kind of just struggling with that. And I just want to just offer you uh, an opportunity this morning, again, just to be able to lay down that why question and just take up that trust affirmation that, God, I'm trusting you with this, even though I don't understand why. I'm going to trust you with this. God, I'm giving you all these broken pieces, God, so that you can do what only you can do and that, God, you're going to restore and you're going to bring meaning and purpose um, out of that. So, Father, we just I just pray for anybody here this morning that maybe is kind of just struggling with that why or maybe they're struggling with the broken pieces of life. They're trying to make sense of it. They're trying to put it all back together. God, I would ask this morning, God, that you would just help them to be able to lay down that why question and just to take up that trust affirmation where, God, they're just going to cast their faith and their trust upon you. That in not understanding the why, God, they're just trusting you with the pieces. God, we just thank you again for that promise says, and for we know, we're confident that God is able to take all of that and God is able to begin to work it and to bring forth good from it to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would just set our hearts upon loving you and just seeking after your plans and your purposes for our lives and just trusting you with the why and the broken pieces, Father. And I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody out there this morning that just needs to do that, God, I pray you'll just bring them to a place, God, where they can just lay it all down and then take up whatever it is that you have for them, Father. And I just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.